The sermon text this morning will be Psalm 49. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble, when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Truly no man can ransom another, or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that they should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol, with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Do you dread going to funerals? I mean, if you had the choice to go to a funeral or to go to a wedding, what would you do? I mean, most of us are all drawn to go to a wedding, right? Well, it's funny, the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God, because in Ecclesiastes, which is another book of wisdom, this is a wisdom psalm, as we're going to find out. Uh, in Ecclesiastes, he says this. He says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. In other words, understanding the brevity of life, you lay that to heart, there's, there's great wisdom for you. Now, Jonathan Edwards, you've heard that name a thousand times, pastor in New England a few hundred years back. He was a young man, and he understood himself uh, as he came to faith in God, that he knew that his joy would ultimately be related to God. That if he really wanted to be happy in this life, he had to get right with God and, and follow God. And so he made these resolutions. As a very young man, he did. Made resolutions that this is how he's going to operate his life. And the ninth resolution that he wrote were in these words. He says, resolved to think much on all occasions of my dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. This is a morbid to you. I mean, is it morbid to think about death or is it corrective? Is it corrective? Can thinking about death actually help us? I think you know, you've probably heard a story or two of a person who has a near-death experience. Maybe they just miss an accident or maybe they come out of an accident they didn't think they would. And it really kind of recalibrates their life. It kind of changes the way they think. It, all of a sudden, life becomes actually a little sweeter. Thinking about death, thinking about the brevity of life, as we're going to find in the psalm, is very helpful. Now, why did I choose it on Father's Day? I didn't, I forgot it was Father's Day, so forgive me for that. 
I did preach hell once on Christmas Eve. That was a major downer. There's a reason for that. Jesus did come to deliver us from it, but I didn't do that again. But you know where we've been? We've had this series in the book of Minor Prophets. Uh, minor Prophets, we finished them. There are 12 of them. I hope you go back and listen to the ones you missed. It really, we found the same theme throughout, which was simply that God is holy and he's just and he punishes sin. But thankfully, he's given us a Savior that has come to deliver us from sin. So you see justice and mercy working together through those minor prophets. But we're changing the series now. We're going to do a six-week series on the Psalms. The series changes, but the same truth is going to be proclaimed, that God is worthy of all of our worship, and we're to live for his glory, and in that we'll find our greatest joy. But in this series on the Psalms, we're going to look at them as a window through which to worship God. See, the Psalms are really radically different from all the other scriptures. Most scriptures is God speaking to us, but in the Psalms, we speak to God. It's a different way. Athanasius was a church father. That just means he was a church leader in the first few hundred centuries of our, of, um, after Christ. He says, most of the scriptures speak to us, but the Psalms speak for us. So what I want to do is go through these Psalms, different types of Psalms. Like we'll do a Psalm of wisdom today. Next week, a Psalm of lament. We'll do a Psalm of penitence, a Psalm of trust a psalm of thanksgiving and a psalm of praise. And what these psalms are doing is we're going to understand how to worship God in them. The psalms are really giving us language of worship. In other words, we want to become fluent in our worship so that when we're thankful and we're happy, we can read a psalm of praise or a psalm of thanksgiving and we can worship God. But when devastating news comes into our life, we can read a psalm of lament and we can still worship God with the words that he gives to us. Over a third of the Psalms are lament. Why? We're living a life of exile. It's a difficult life. He gives us the words with which we can approach God, even in our complaint. And so I want these Psalms to be tools for you. So you go home and you read these Psalms and you're going you're to be lamenting before God when tragedy comes. You're going to be thanking God when times of pleasure come. But, but it's verticalizing all of our experience, that we're, we're talking to God about our life. And that's what these psalms in this series will hope to do. Well, today is a psalm of wisdom. That means that this psalm is purporting to give us wisdom to live, guidance to live. So again, most psalms look to God. Many of the psalms look to God in prayer and praise. It's our words speaking to God. Psalms of wisdom are a bit different. It's the preacher speaking to others about God so that you will praise. So in other words, it really doesn't speak about God directly. It speaks, or it doesn't speak to God directly, but about God. Look with me in your text at the first four verses, because you're going to kind of see this introduction to what wisdom literature is like. He says, hear this, peoples, give ear all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I'll incline my ear to a proverb and will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. What's he doing here? He's simply calling us. He wants to be heard. He wants to be heard, and he's calling to all peoples. He's not calling to just the religious. He's calling to all peoples, all inhabitants of the earth. Do you see him say rich and poor and, and high and low? 
Those are called merisms. Merisms are just kind of speaking about a totality. He's not just talking about the rich and the poor, but everybody in between. He's not just talking about the high and the low, but everybody in, in between. He's saying you all need wisdom. Every one of us breathing on this earth needs the wisdom that comes from God. Now, the wisdom that we're going to get from here is not informational updates. It, it, it's not going to be more factoids about life. It's kind of the stuff that you do for your kids. You know, when you want to instruct your kids, you don't just give them data points, but you're trying to give them insight as to how to live so that they flourish. It's kind of like learning how to sail. You can go to classroom, you can learn currents and temperatures and winds and all that. You've got to get on a boat and sail to learn how to sail. And, and that's what these wisdom psalms are giving. They're trying to give you guidance as to how you ought to live not just more information for your head. And you notice that he says, I'll appeal to a proverb, I'll turn my ear. He's saying, I'm not giving you wisdom that I've gained from life. I'm giving you wisdom from God. You won't find this wisdom on the pages of the paper, but in the pages of the scriptures. So let me just ask you, do you think you need wisdom? And if you do, where do you get it from? Now, we are awash in information. We have huge do-it-yourself sections in Barton's and Noble. We have YouTube videos to do everything. And if you're wondering about more of the, on the emotional side of life, we have plenty of talk shows that will talk about their experiences and their testimonies, just sharing with you everything that they've learned. This is different. This is a higher level. It's more general wisdom. In this psalm, you're going to see two things. You're going to hear first a warning. You will be warned in this passage, particularly in the first 12 verses, you'll be warned about not pursuing the things of this world, not living by the spirit of the age, but by not being in fear of those with wealth and power, or not even being tempted to it. And, and, and yet you're also going to be encouraged, particularly in the second half, you're going to be encouraged that there is something beyond this world that causes all of the world to just seem as worthless. He, he's encouraging us to live with an eye on that day when we will be with God. And he's going to make it quite practical for us. So, so look with me in verse 5, because he begins this psalm of wisdom in verse 5, where he says these words. He asks a question, he says, Why should I fear in times of trouble, when the iniquity of those who cheat surrounds me? those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. So he's, he's dragging us into this deal with a question. And he's saying this, why should you fear? Why among, if, if the wise, why should the wise fear when people surround you and deceive you and cheat you, or those in authority have greater financial leverage and power of you, why should you fear? In other words, he's saying, don't be tempted by that. Don't be in fear of those who may stand over you financially or in positions of authority. You're not to fear. Why? Because we know their end. We're not to be tempted to pursue after the things of this world so that we maybe can get on top of the pile instead of being on the bottom of the pile. He says, you know their end. Their end is coming. He says it clearly. He says there, says no one can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. Now, this 
in this day, ransom was practice. So you, you got prisoners of war back from the enemy by paying for them. Or you would, you would free a person out of servitude for, pray, for paying for them. What he's saying is you can't do that out of death. That death is inescapable. He says you cannot spare them that they would live forever and never see the pit. In other words, you can't buy anybody out of death. Do you realize that? No matter how rich, powerful, strong, intelligent, position of authority you are, there is no one, there is no way that you can be delivered from that final day. You can't buy out. Nobody can deliver you from it. You know, it was Voltaire, French philosopher, antagonistic to Christianity. As he lay dying, despair came upon him. And he offered half his estate to the surgeon to give him six months of life. That, that's not in the surgeon's realm. That doesn't happen. But not just is death inescapable, it's inevitable. Look with me in 10 and 11. He says, for he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations though they called lands by their own names. You can hear this. He's saying, whether you're wise or stupid, all people perish, all die. There's no one who, who is delivered from that. There's no way. Even those who have lands named after them, they've attained a level of power and sophistication. They all perish, every one of them. He kind of sums it up in verse 12. Look with me in 12 where he says, Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. In other words, so he's kind of giving us a picture of what humanity is. Man in his pomp. That is man in his glory. You think of all the people walking around in the glory of their successes. He says they're like the beasts of the field. They're not going to endure. Rich or high. Rich or poor, high or low, they will not endure. They're not going to take anything with them into the next life. Can you imagine those grave diggers or those grave thieves that would have found like Pharaoh's tomb? You know, when, when the Egyptians would bury their pharaohs and their, their mighty men, they would send into a tomb food and gold and money. And some of the higher-ups even had servants sent in with them. Why? Because they wanted to provision them for the next life. And can you imagine those grave thieves? They come in and, you know, it's like the you know, funeral director. How much did he leave? Everything. You don't take anything with you. I mean, can you imagine the giddiness that they felt? How they recognized how foolish it is to think that they'll take it with them when they were going to profit from it? Well, how do you think about death? I mean, the wise person thinks about death. When you think about it, do you try to joke it off and make some humorous comment? Many of us do. You know, I always quote that Woody Allen quote, I'm not afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. You know, kind of thing. We joke about it. Others of us just distract ourselves from it. We don't think about it. We fill our minds. And this is particularly sad among those who are older. Recently, I was with someone and asked him, do you think about death? He says, no, I never think about it. He's pressing mid-80s. No, I never think about it. Why don't you? Is it not coming? They just distract themselves. 
Uh, others deny themselves or deceive themselves. Really, what they do is they just they focus on the goal at hand. They live from step to step to step. It's my career, it's my family, it's my children, or it's my retirement. And, and we just deceive ourselves and we never deal with it. We just continue to press on. It, it, it's like the animal that just goes from clump to clump to clump. We never look up. We never consider what's coming. I pray that's not you. Because the wisdom afforded by this psalm uh, gives you four warnings. Four warnings. The first one would be don't trust in riches. Clearly, the call is to not trust in riches. To not put your hope in them. Riches cannot make you healthy. Riches cannot give you peace and rest. Riches cannot reconcile your relationships. Riches cannot do any of these things that give meaning and value to life. You know, many scholars think that this psalm actually provided the information for Jesus when he gave that parable in Luke 12 about that rich fool. If you remember the parable, Jesus chides the people. He says there was a man who had fields, and the fields produced and produced and produced. And he built barns, and then, you know, he built bigger barns. And then this is what he said to himself, and I quote from Luke 12. He says, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You know, we, we don't want to succumb to the temptation to think that we're going to somehow be better off because we have rested in the riches that we have. We don't want to trust in these riches. I was going to kind of, I was going to read to you, and for the sake of time, I won't. You can Google it. But like you just Google 10 Powerball winners. It's train wreck after train wreck after train wreck. Many of these Powerball winners, when they win bazillions of dollars, they say, I wish I never had the money. They've gotten divorced. They've gotten in trouble. It, it just... It doesn't provide any sort of sure and certain foundation for you. So ask yourselves, and this is the part where the church can play a role in each other's life. Do you trust in riches? Now, you know, you notice in this psalm, the psalm really is spoken to people who are being oppressed by the rich. But we really are the rich. I don't care how you divvy it up. We in this Eurocentric kind of Western culture, we are the rich. Are we trusting in these things? How often do you flip open your portfolio? How nervous do you get when the market turns? I mean, how much do you think about it? Uh, as I asked you last week, if you get this windfall of cash, what's the first thing you want to do with it? Is it about you or securing things? Ask your spouse or ask a good friend. Do you see me worrying a lot? Do you see me trusting a lot? Does your mind go there a lot? It's a, perhaps a point of repentance for us. That, that we are, maybe not trying, because many Christians tend to be wealthy. We do. And by the way, it's not wrong to say we're wealthy. God's not opposed to wealth. He's opposed to those who trust in their wealth. I think we don't like to hear we're wealthy because it implies some responsibility that we're not meeting. And, and, and we want to ask God, what would you have me do with the wealth that I have? Definitely not trust in it. But there's a second warning I think he has here, which is don't ignore the brevity of life. Listen, we live in a culture of death. 6,316 people die every hour. Two people die every second. By the time I finish this sermon, over 3,000 people will have died. 
We live in a culture of death. You see it in the roadkill. I was coming back from a conference, and there's a bird with a worm in its mouth. We're just surrounded by death. And it's always been that way, right? From Adam. Adam rebels against God. He's removed from the presence of God. Sin enters and death follows. And he began a journey down to the grave of which we all travel the same journey. It's always been that way. And it will be that way until the very end. Until he comes back to save us. So, so we have to recognize life is brief. Now for those of you who are younger, you know it's harder for you. It's really hard. Because you just think you've got nothing but time ahead of you. Or for those of you in your middle years, you know, 20 to 40, you know, you're in the fast-paced part of your careers, you're raising children, you're having families, it's very busy, you don't think about it. I would encourage you to make a prayer, like take Psalm 39, which is another wisdom psalm. Psalm 39, here's what the psalmist prays. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Do you not need this? Behold, you've made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and doesn't know who will gather it. And now, O oh Lord, what do I wait? My hope is in you. It's the same language as Psalm 49. I mean, be aware. Don't ignore the brevity of life. Take time to stop and look at your skin changing. Look at your body changing. All these are just, act, they're just gifts of God to give us grace, to recognize. Ask somebody, 75, how quick has it gone? They'll tell you, it's gone like the wind. That's how fast time is. And then I would also say, don't forget that death will bring justice. As I said, this psalm really is about those. You know, we don't live in a culture where your boss is changing your wages or withholding wages. We don't live in a culture where those in authority can just really kind of turn the thumbscrews down on you. We have court systems. We have police. We have a degree of access to justice. Whereas many generations would have read this psalm and they would have been overwhelmed. They're saying, I am. My wages have been changed. My money has been withheld from me. They've moved boundary markers on me. I, who to whom do I turn? Turn to God. God says, I'll bring justice. It brings justice to those who have suffered. You may not have, I may not have suffered as many, many generations of Christians have. But there is justice waiting, and it begins at death. And then last, I would say, don't wait to consider what I'm saying here. I mean, I, mean, I mean, don't wait until that moment comes when all of a sudden you're in a mad dash to think about life when it becomes really very, very brief. Now consider these things now. I mean, I want you to, the man in 12, here's what I want you to think of. The man in 12, the man in his pomp is like the beast that perish. So you're driving down the road and you see a cattle farm next to you and you see those cows out there and they're just munching on the grass. They look like they have life by the tail. All they're doing is eating. They're not having to work. They're just eating. They're enjoying life. They're going from clump to clump, as I said, and, and they're not worried about work. They can lay down if they want. They, it seems that they have life as you would desire it. But none of you desire or envy that position. Why? Well, you know the slaughterhouse. You know the butcher. You know that he may be taking life free and easy right now, but what awaits him is something significant. 
You think about all the people that just live like the beast of the field. They have no thought of God. They have no thought of eternity. They have no thought of life ending. They're just moving from the new car to the new house, to the new job, to the new spouse, to the new toy, to the new gadget. All the while, they're just like the beast in the field, just mowing along the grass. And then the day comes. Consider these things. I mean, be mindful of this truth. This is wisdom that God, don't fail to consider this. Many are apt to do it. You're going to go home to celebrations, and I want you to celebrate. And, and men in particular, men in particular, especially fathers, this is a message we teach our children. This is a message we begin bringing forth so that they can set the success of their life in the context of the brevity of life. That's wisdom. Okay, so that's the first 12 verses. But you'll notice a shift in verse 13, and this is where I think he turns to encourage us with wisdom. Look with me at 13. He says in 13 and 14, this is the path. So he's speaking to that 1 to 12. He says, this is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Like sheep, they're appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Now, let the chill of this passage affect you. Envision your mind. He's personifying death. He's saying death is a shepherd. Death is going to be like the grim reaper, leading those unsuspecting fools, those with foolish confidence. He leads them to Sheol, where their bodies will be consumed. But notice the encouragement we have in 15. The first thing he says is that God will ransom us. That you, the wise, you don't need to fear death. You don't need to fear any sort of death. Why? Because he's going to ransom you. Look in 15. He says, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Now listen, that but God, this is one of the high watermarks of the Old Testament for hope. He says, but God. But God. So in other words, what he's saying is, if it was up to Tom, I'd be following the shepherd of death to Sheol. But God, he had other plans. He has ransomed me. You see the personal nature of ransom. This isn't kind of a collective, we're going to save a nation. He has ransomed me. Now you remember back in verse 7, no one can ransom the life of another. We know that, but God can ransom. But he doesn't just ransom us. He doesn't just redeem us. Notice what he does. He receives us. You see what it says there at the end of 15? He will receive me. That's the same word used for Enoch. That's an Old Testament saint that never saw death. It says God received him into heaven. Or you'll see it in Psalm 73, another wisdom psalm. He says that he will take me into glory. He will receive me into glory. In other words, the word receive is used when we come to God. So the encouragement for the wise is to not fear death, why? Because he's going to ransom me, he's going to receive me. This is the story of the Bible. So when you think about the beginning, when God created man and woman, he created them to be with himself in the garden, in this beautiful garden. It was perfect, it wasn't complete. And it says that they dwelt with God in the cool of the day. Can you imagine dwelling with God? Of course, Adam and Eve rebelled from God, they're removed from the garden, and with that comes a life in exile, which is where we are now. This life of exile and we're apart from God, death is now part of the picture, so is trial and sickness and adversity. He raises up the people of Israel, he calls them. He brings them back to the land. The land was a little picture of the garden, but it wasn't the garden. But it was showing them, I'm taking you back to the garden. 
But they, of course, failed to follow God. So he sends his own son, Jesus. And then Jesus, where does he begin his preaching ministry? In the desert. Why in the desert? Well, he wants to remind people. I'm like Moses. Moses led you out of exile to Egypt. I'm going to lead you out of exile to sin. I'm going to lead you back to the Father. And then so why are we surprised in Revelation when we have a garden in there? Why? Because he's leading us back to God. Why? Because God's going to dwell with us where there will be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. The old order of things has passed away. Do you see this redemptive arc that he's doing? That he is receiving us to be with himself. This is why when you look at verses 16 through 19, he says, don't be afraid when men's kingdoms grow and their wealth increases. They're not going to take any of it with them. You don't need to fear that. You have been promised by God that he's going to ransom you and he's going to redeem you, ransom you and receive you to himself. This is the, the, the man or the woman with wisdom. They see right through the beauties of this world. There's something far more beautiful that the gifts of God are not to distract from God. They're to actually promote our love for God. And yet we turn to him and we, we kneel before him and worship him like joy is going to somehow come from, from sex or a new car or a better house or a better job. Really? Do we think so low of God that somehow sex is better than him or, or that, that new things are better than him? No, the, the man or the woman of wisdom, he's going to ransom me and he's going to receive me. And that's why in verse 20, you see what the psalmist says. Now, I want you to look at that with me because in 20, he says these words. He says, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. Now look back at verse 12. Because in 12, it's the same verse, but there's a difference. He says, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like beasts that perish. The difference in 20 is, he says, yet without understanding. In other words, if you don't gain understanding, if you don't gain wisdom, you're going to be like the beast of the field. And so that's why we need 49. Because he's giving us the wisdom that we need so that we're not like the beast of the field. What wisdom do we need to gain? We need to gain the wisdom that I've been giving you, that God is the one who ransoms us. God ransoms. Now, you're not going to find a deep, detailed study of ransom in the Old Testament. You see this come to bloom in the, in the New Testament. And you see this idea of ransom take on deep, rich form. When you listen to the words of Jesus, he says, listen, I've come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. In other words, you cannot ransom yourself. That wouldn't be grace. You'd be buying your own salvation. No, God had to ransom us to God. God the Son ransomed us to God. That's the only way that salvation can be of grace. We see the same thing in 1 Peter when he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, that is, from the sinful ways. Not with perishable things such as gold or silver. That runs right along Psalm 49. But with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So Jesus Christ has ransomed us. So for us to be wise, the first thing is to understand to be ransomed by God is through faith in Christ. That's the beginning of wisdom, to understand who Jesus Christ is. If you're here today and you're, you're, you're looking at the faith, but perhaps you've been burned by the faith or you haven't come to a point of, of really seeing your need, what the psalmist is saying to you specifically is to be wise in this world 
It's to understand the hope we have in the redemption that is in God through Christ. In fact, Romans 3 says it well, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption, through the ransoming that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And those, this is the beginning of wisdom that He has ransomed us and He will receive us. So, so you see in this, in this beautiful psalm, you see the warnings, right? The warnings are to us. And then you see this encouragement that he will ransom and he will receive us if, if we gain understanding. So let me just remind you, the wise, the wise will see death as a corrective to life. You will see it as a corrective. When you consider your own mortality, it will have an effect of bringing your life into being oriented to God. This idea of well, why did they used to put cemeteries around churches? Do you think it was because the ground was cheaper? Nobody else wanted to live there, so we'll put the cemetery there? There's a lot of reasons why they would put cemeteries around churches, but, but one practical reason was you had to walk through it to get to church. You were reminded every day. Every time you went to church, you were reminded, I'm going to be in some piece of this ground here. And when you recognize that, and that's, by the way, the reason the Puritans took out the stained glass windows. They weren't opposed to stained glass windows. They put them in their houses, frankly. But they wanted the preacher and they wanted the people to look through clear glass to see where they would be. Why? Because it changed the way we live. When you know you're going to stand before God, you reconcile your relationships quicker. You don't hold on to bitterness and anger. You handle your money differently. You recognize you can't take it with you, and so you're much more generous with it. You're willing to sacrifice for the needs of others, to put yourself in points of stretch and danger for the sake of others. Why? Because you know you're going to die. It changes the way we speak to people. It affects the way we spend our money. It affects the way we reconcile our relationships. It changes us. To recognize the brevity of your life will correct the way you live. It'll bring, you, it'll bring God into the decision-making processes that you have. It won't simply be, what's better for me? It's going to be, God, what would you have me do? And that's the beginning of wisdom. So, so recognize that the wise understand thinking about death is not morbid. It's actually corrective to life. It helps keep me walking in wisdom with God. But then secondly, the wise don't fear death. They don't fear death. Look with me back at verse 14, because you notice the contrast. He talks about those who will be led by the, by the shepherd of death. But in 14 it says, but in the morning. So interesting how he puts these words in. He says, in the morning, the upright will rule over them, or the upright will rule over them in the morning. Uh, the morning is a euphemism for a new day. A new day, as in the new day, as in the resurrection. That there will be a morning that you wake up that is radically different. And there's going to be a reversal. And that's why he's saying the upright will rule over them. Rule over who? He's saying that the upright will rule over those who once ruled over them. There's going to be this kind of dimension in that day. 
The wise know that now. They're not looking to rule and they're not looking to master and domineer now. They're looking to serve and love and worship because in that day it's going to be rever- there's going to be the grand reversal. That's why we don't fear death. We actually look forward to it. Look forward to it as the door to be with God that he would receive me. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable will be raised imperishable. What is sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. What is sown in weakness will be raised in power. It's sown in natural body. It will be raised a spiritual body. God's going to reverse things. Can you imagine that? No more sickness, no more death, no more mourning. You kind of see Jesus reversing things in his own ministry. Why? Because he's telling us this is what's coming. This is what's yours. We don't need to fear that. We don't fear death. Death cannot stop what God has started. We can rejoice in that. And we're to help each other in this. Not just, I see my role, at, you know, because sometimes people bust on me a little bit. Hey, you're talking about death a little bit. Well, Scripture talks about it. Scripture talks about it all the time. And, and why? Because it's a corrective to life. But we need each other to do this. That when we're facing adversity, trials, even when we're at the height of success, we need people to remind us we have clay feet and our days are numbered. In fact, we're called to count our days. I do. I count the seasons left. For me, you know, it says a strong man is 70. Maybe if or a man has life of 70, if he's strong, maybe 80. So I count up to 70. I got 12 Christmases left, 12 summers left. 12 times left to rake the leaves. I, I don't do that in any morbid fashion. I just do it to recognize these days are they're approaching. I need to be wise. That's what I want to do for you. I want you to do that for each other. Let me just remind you of what uh, Sir John Bunyan wrote, Pilgrim's Progress, and Charles Spurgeon was one of his favorite books. And so he quoted Mr. Greatheart. Mr. Greatheart was a character in the story that were encouraging people towards God and encouraging people to finish well. He's kind of one of the characters along the way of this story. Uh, There's Christian, was the name of the man, kind of making his way through life, through the trials and adversities of life. And Mr. Greatheart would come along and encourage him in faith and encourage him to keep fighting on to finish well. And here's what Charles Spurgeon wrote about it. He says, and, and this is for you and for me. He says, I'm occupied in a small way as Mr. Greatheart was employed in Bunyan's day. I, I don't compare myself with that champion, but I am in the same line of business. I am engaged in personally. He says, I'm engaged in personally conducted tours to heaven. It's my business as best I can to kill dragons, cut off giants' heads, and lead on the timid and the trembling. I'm often afraid of losing some of the weaklings. I have the heartache for them. But by God's grace and your kind and generous help in looking after one another, I hope we can all travel safely to the river's edge. And how many, he says, and how many have I had to part with there? He says, I've stood on the bank and I've heard them singing in the midst of the stream. And I've almost seen The shining ones lead them up the hill through the gates into the celestial city. That's what we're doing. We, if we're wise, we are like Mr. Greatheart. We're accompanying one another to the river. We've seen many depart. 
almost seeing them go up the hill to the celestial city. The wise man doesn't forget that day. May we be wise. Let's take a moment and just ask God for clarity, maybe even conviction, perhaps even celebration that we have such a hope. And then I'll pray for us.